Here we are with another episode of Research Conversations podcast with host V. Vale. Today's guest, we have a recording of the late Dirk Dirksen in conversation with V. Vale. This is part two. Thanks for listening. When we had talent that one could maybe see that there was a uh, potential in the performer, but that they definitely didn't have it yet. But by bringing them on, giving the, them the opportunity, and we would, uh, I would do the bit by saying, well, you know, as an audience goes, you're not such a big deal. As a matter of fact, you're probably the sorriest lot of an audience that I've ever seen. But I have a surprise for you. The talent, we can't even say that we're scraping the barrel. <laughs> this is just the splinters of a, uh, uh, a badly broken up barrel. But you'll love each other. So there was an affinity for the act that we had just lambasted because they were still sort of going, where does he get off calling me the worst audience in the world? <laughs> so then that was, you know, let's go hang Dirk. Yay! And some of them got carried away and did the nose breaking or the ankle <laughs> breaking. I had the top of You had of an this, ankle broken? Both. Jeez. And the, uh, the elbow, the top part on this side is missing. Well, you know, what you just said, I mean, reminds me that back in the very beginning of the punk scene when nothing was defined. I mean, I really felt one of the great things is there's very little dichotomy between the audience and the performers, and the performers on stage practically next week would be up on stage exactly. in some band they'd thrown together. I remember the one great thing about punk was that it gave you permission to, like, you know, pick up a bass and practice it for a week and literally... A week later, be playing at the Mab. I did notice earlier mm -hmm. that you did not specify uh, the submission of a demo tape. No, no. <laughs> Any kind of, you know, if you used a dicta, I mean, a, a, a dictaphone dic kind right. of thing, and just I just wanted to hear not the competence of the music, but the kind of genre, because if it was humorous, then it would be great to marry it or mesh it with something else. So your uh, description of what happened, it's interesting mm. because at the same time that that occurred, uh, Tipper Gore was hassling Biafra along with uh, the rest of the witches from Washington, D.C. that had found the Parents uh, Music Resource Center. And mm. uh, so we took the, when Biafra got nailed for the album, uh, when we put up the No More Censorship Defense Fund, that Kathy came up with a slogan, uh, education, not legislation, because New York was trying to uh, sort of uh, get a power base going on uh, using the uh, uh, audio meters in the park, that if your music hit a certain decibel level that the parks department could deny you a permit. Wow. So that was where those kind of, and so that what was 
sort of a raggedy, even though from my estimation, an interesting, innovative theater and a good uh, stomping ground for a lot of new talent. But I mean, we were involved in all sorts of sorts of social issues that were relevant to the artist. The any kind of restrictions on the artist that were legitimate. Now, obviously, anyone that says, oh, you can play the music as loud as you want to go ahead, blow your ears out, has got to be a little <coughs> bit, needs some tweaking. I, yeah, I don't uh, think people in the early punk days could afford large amps. No one had any money. Well, you, know, you, don't, lead, you don't need large amps to really screw up your hearing. It's how you, you uh, calibrate it and stuff. So there were a lot of folks that were very young, as you well remember, because of the, uh, the fact that we could allow them. And some of them uh, have expressed great gratitude for being given uh, a certain amount of trust that, uh, you know, that they wouldn't screw up. Uh, so those are the unpredictable uh, sort of challenges that you constantly have. Felt like a, a high school drama coach <laughs> of putting up these interesting shows. You'd have, as it progressed over the 10 years, we did get a uh, good following from the gay community because we did a lot of benefits. Uh, Tom Amiano, uh, they, Nixon 6 was Proposition 6, which would have precluded uh, gays from being school teachers in the state of California. And uh, uh, Tom was uh, a school teacher here in the city, was very concerned for kids with disabilities because the kids that had hearing problems would suffer when they were just written off as, ah, oh, you can't teach her, they're just stupid. Nobody ever really thought, well, if you can't hear, how the hell are you going to learn? And he brought in the programming for uh, uh, teaching disabled kids. So he and I formed a bond, and uh, uh, we did that benefit for him. Uh, over the years, uh, I have sort of tried to influence him with... Uh, uh, programs and support ideas. He's very into public power instead of PG&E. Oh, I see. Right. And the newest idea, which I think is great, because they're going to have to s dig up all of the different sewers around the city, that this would be the perfect time to lay the new cables for cable television. And once it's done, kick out Comcast or any of the other companies and make it a s municipal cable system and put in all of the features of the new technology because what they have buried over the years, the different for-profit businesses, are not necessarily the current state of the arts. So you can't do uh, broadband and other things which you could now lay all at one time where the cost is already borne by putting in the new sewer. So he's a very progressive guy. And that is some of the uh, the fallout from having a theater or a locale, forget theater, but a meeting place. Because you've made 
uh, mentions of that that you need. What are the elements that you need? Yeah, you need places to get. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the wonderful heritage and payback from those days of from 74 to 84. That's 20 years ago. And w without exaggeration, I receive at least two or three emails uh, a week from people that were members of the audience. Hmm. How or they find you? Huh? They look, search for Dirk Dirksen and wow, Google that's a pretty, or what? pretty unique name, Dirk Dirksen. So I would guess they do. Uh, and uh, we have a relatively extensive website, uh, hmm. outspokenideas.com. It should be DirkDirksen.com, don't you think? <laughs> nah, that's, that's egotistical. Hmm. Give them a little challenge to find. Not out of ego that I'm going to say this, but it takes an individual to make a difference. Now, in it takes that a group case, too, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what I'm getting at is it takes an individual that's willing to bring in people around him or her and to foster a family type of thing. I mean, yeah. because we fed people every Monday. I ate your with, popcorn. That was dinner well, numerous times yeah, when I had no but I mean, money. we did the, uh, uh, the, the bad spaghetti. <laughs> I couldn't afford those. You know, no, we gave them free on Mondays. Oh, did you? Yes, yes. Well, Ra Rabbit's the type of person that, to me, exemplified the incredible diversity and tolerance in the very earliest. Yes. Th two or three years of punk because there wasn't any um, any so-called you know ironclad aesthetic thank goodness you could pretty much do anything in the early days you, there were a lot more women on the front lines because that was before they invented that horrible slam dance thing. yes and um, there were a lot more women in bands and you were not supposed to be imitating each other you know, you mm -hmm. were supposed to be different. And, and Rabbit's one person who never cut his hair, as far as I knew. He always had really long hair, you know. And that was okay. You didn't have to, you know, have a spike punk haircut. No. I mean, everything is so surface now, you know, and, and anti-diversity, it seems like. And uh, there was such a richness. And a lot of people, when it, when it was and it, truly a scene started by outsiders of all ages, I mean... You know, you were just grateful if anyone came into the scene and and became what we called kind of hardcore, which generally meant quitting any forty-hour-a-week job, and uh, and you know, just going to the club and just sort of trying to be creative in your personal life. Well, you're, I think, uh, a little bit uh, predisposed towards the. Uh, more uh, definitely in your face, as far as the the punk thing, the aggressive. No, the early days when yeah. it started. Those are the early days before everything gets defined and clones start appearing. You know, and imitators and people who just don't really. When it's easy, you know. I mean, I remember no one in the punk days called each other punk. That's ridiculous. No. That's an outsider term. Yeah. Well, it became. You know, this manufactured violence. I yes. mean, that, that serves the interests of the, you know, the status quo major media to show, you know, 
cast as much aspersion upon punk as possible and to show the sensationalism and violence. I mean, they, that's still their formula today. They want, you know, they they want to push the envelope of shock and all that. And uh, I mean, they don't care about you know encouraging a creative underground to flourish, really. Well, I, I'm not so sure that any of the earlier ones actually had in their mind saying, oh, I'm going to do something to help bring about. No, they were out to have a good time, but they were at a different level of awareness, of education, because when you look at some of the folks in, uh, like Avengers, they came from well-educated families, and therefore, uh, they had more building blocks to work. They were, they shared rebellion because of they're all that same age. You know, I'm kind of um, interested in kind of contexting this because I woke up this morning realizing that, you know, we really haven't had that much freedom since time began to kind of form kind of a bohemian artistic community. I mean, there haven't been that many, as as far as I know, because as the word bohemian was coined around the time of Toulouse-Lautrec, around you know, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s in France, and 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 you had a famous novel written chronicling the life of what it's like to be a starving artist, but one that's having kind of a great um, love life, I suppose, is the way to put it, and having lots of fun you know, discussing art theory and creative ideas, you know, and being in coffee shops all the time or bars or whatever they're called. And, and, and I think it was around 1886 that you had this uh, book called, you know, Bohemia by Henri Merger come out, which mm -hmm. is kind of a, a blueprint for an underground because, again, you had people who were, they didn't have to work much. Lots of leisure time, I think, is another condition to start a counterculture. And you had sort of a manifesto in this book by Henri Merger, and you had artists, places, you know, in Montmartre for artists to meet, regular cafes, you could, and literally, by the time it was around 1910, you had, I know you had at least 10 artists who came, moving from Japan to Paris to be in the art scene because they wanted to be in a scene where something was happening as it was happening before it got all corporately exploited and famous and all that. And um, also uh, after that, in, in France you had the Dada group, but then more importantly you had the Surrealist group. But if you wanted to be a Surrealist you could come you know, from Spain or wherever, mm -hmm. Germany, and you know you could find the Surrealists at a certain cafe in Paris, and if you had any talent and, and had a sort of certain kind of rebellious spirit, you know, you could join in. And then, of course, we had the Beats, you know, who uh, weren't working. Fortunately, because of North Beach, there was extremely good coffee, espresso. And I think that fueled, that, that fueled a lot of the earlier undergrounds, too. And then, of course, you had the hippie movement here, and then you had the punks. And uh, now you've got a clampdown in the form of totally unaffordable real estate for um, anyone who wants to be a bohemian artist. And uh, plus, you know, I don't know if there's that many places. That, there isn't any 
theory either. All these other movements more or less have some kind of theory going on in publishing. And everything just seems to be scattered to the winds now. Okay, let's hear it for the mutants. They're going to... They're going to retire their song, Insect Lounge, with this performance. So let's hear it for them. We'd like to dedicate this song to Dirk. Last time we're ever going to play it. And you have to sing here. Oh, the sky is falling.
to Research Conversations podcast with host V. Vale, brought to you by Research Books. Thanks for listening. <laughs>